Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is someone that's been on probably, what, three or four times already over the years? Still. But not enough at all. Uh, Catherine Dockery, who is the founder and CEO of Vice Ventures. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, um, Catherine runs, I think, one of the most interesting venture funds in the world, which is Vice Ventures, exactly what it sounds like. She invests in bad shit. So, <laughs> sex stuff, drugs, alcohol, gambling, nicotine. You know, those are where she's got businesses in, and it's all fascinating things. Um, and so uh, I'm an LP in her fund. Uh, she was on the board of my SPAC. You've spoken to my class. I advise you guys. We just sort of we're great work on a lot of stuff together. Yeah, so it's been really good. So let's take a step back to macro and give me your take on where the economy is right now and sort of the state of venture and tech right now. So we look at it very differently than other funds look okay. at it. Um, as we are in an incredibly volatile market and we're seeing deals fall apart left and right, we are seeing strong growth in vice categories. Mm -hmm. And not for nothing, but at the same time as FTX was collapsing and people are wondering if crypto is dead, Philip Morris increased their bid for Swedish Match by $2 billion. And is that because in hard times, people tend to turn devices more for comfort? Yeah, absolutely. And we, the team and I, we did the work and we saw that there's actually more exits in the vice categories during bear markets and recessions than any other category. So, so it's I'm good jazzed. for you. How do you, as overall, as you look through both the economy broadly, inflation, interest rates, all that stuff, and then specifically the overall state of, of venture capital and tech, vice aside, what would be your take on it? I think it's really hard to be a consumer investor right now. I think it's almost an impossible task. I think we live in a world where thing testing makes sense, right? There's so yeah. many brands that people now need a guide to buy brands. Yeah. Um, with consumers bending down, uh, yeah, so that's a place I would never put my money right now. Um, but I mean, SaaS is, I have no idea. Do you feel like overall, there seems to be two points of view, right? One is that, it's not going to be as bad as everyone thought. Inflation's slowing down. Stock market's ticking up, um, and there'll be a very soft landing, or not even a need for a soft landing. Or there's the like you could just paint all the super bleak facts and say like, here's why things are really fucked up. Where do you tend to land in that spectrum? I tend to land in the worse it is, the better it'll be for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, right? Just like if you just think about the demand for vices, right? Like, even if inflation hits to 250%, people will still be buying their vices. Right. So do you think, like, the, so the most counter-cyclical items would be people who smoke, still smoke cigarettes, yep. right? Or they try to quit and use another one of your products that you've invested in, right? Yes. They're still drinking. They're doing drugs at a higher rate because we now have 1,400 illegal weed shops in, in New York City and one legal one, I think. So the state's doing a great fucking bank-up job on that. Um, and then, uh, right, gambling, does it kind of stay steady? Yeah. Those, I mean, we're in green room together, right? Look at the Brazilian yeah. government. Yeah, yeah, totally. Chaos. Right. People are still betting on the platform. Right. sex tech people. Way. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't change. It's, I actually see an investment in vices as an excellent hedge against inflation. Right. Did you think that going into this business, or do you just sort of learn that over time? The more, so I had the idea, and the more I researched it, the more I realized that it's a category to potentially make money regardless of what the environment is. Right. Right. Um, so it's been interesting also kind of like starting the fund and then going into the pandemic and seeing the thesis play out there. 
Right. Pandemic was probably the, the two. Excellent for me. Good for you, great for digital health. Those like, there are certain industries that it was fantastic for. Yeah. And others that it was very bad for. Absolutely. Um, and it's funny, like, I, I obviously, like, we live in an economy where it's cyclical anyway, right? So I knew eventually we would run up into an environment like this uh, much faster than I was expecting it to be. What do you do about the fact, though, that just generally speaking, the IPO market seems so shut down? So, where is there sort of the liquidity for exits for you guys? So, Vices, I mean, I, I would never model out that one of our companies would go public. It's much more likely it's a PE buy or it's a strategic buy. Um, I'm seeing a ton of bids right now across the Vice categories, uh, which, which again is very fascinating, right? Because the thesis that there's more exits in these times seem to be playing true. And I guess also, right, you have, especially on the, if, if you don't have to rely on retail investors, PE funds have to deploy their capital. They, yep. There's a ton of it. They got to do something with it. And yep. so, you know, they're looking to buy companies. So valuations in Vice, how are they compared to like, because I would say on the stuff that we do invest in the Vice stuff, but overall, you know, like 20% overall down, something like that in sort of valuations. Um, what are you seeing on the Vice category? We're seeing, it's so bizarre. I would love to be seeing depressed valuations right, right now. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, I mean, like, obviously there's always deals to be had, right? But I think in this market, I'm becoming increasingly more convinced that it makes more sense to buy into companies with revenue. Mm -hmm. um, so revenue companies... Just, just because you can't count on them raising the money every time they need it, and therefore you want them to have a base where they have enough runway to get kind of through things. Yeah, exactly, right? And then if you have revenue, if you have solid revenue growth, that means you have a real product market fit. Right, so you're kind of taking a huge risk out of investing at a super low valuation for failure immediately. Right, so does that change the stage that you're entering deals at? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so I would say right now we're probably way more hyper-focused on helping our portfolio companies and making new investments. Um, and th that's not because of the way that I see the world, it's just kind of like the demand of the portfolio right now. Yeah. Um, but you, I mean- You are like exceptionally engaged in your portfolio, to a level that I'm not sure I've seen before. <laughs> It's great, but it's... I love building. Yeah. I, like, investing is not fun for me. Like, building is what is fun. Uh, I would not be doing this job if I could not lean in and, like, really become operating partners in our businesses. Right. Um, so what I want to do is run through the different categories of vice and get your take on, here's where it is now, and that can include, like, how, you know, your portfolio companies, if you want to plug them. But then also, like, in 10 years, here's where you think this particular sector is, right? And it could be anything from... 10 times bigger to extinct to having transformed dramatically because technology, whatever it is. So nicotine, which is a which is a sector that you're actually pretty engaged in. We're the most active early stage nicotine investors. Right. So what's the state of play in nicotine right now? How does the industry see it? How does consumers see it? Yeah, so right now is truly an inflection point in the category. Um, because the first time ever you can invest in harm reduction products, so products that don't harm the environment as badly. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, cigarette butts are the number one littered item in the world by yeah. a huge amount. Yeah. Um, so you can invest in products with no inhalation, um, decreased cancer risk, um, and just better for everyone involved right? with no secondhand smoke. So I see the category. So if you actually look at cigarette volumes, mm -hmm. they've been declining for 15 plus years. Weekly declines, um, but then if you look at nicotine use overall, it stays pretty steady. Right, because that's the drug. So, is nicotine without the tar and all the other stuff? Is nicotine bad for you? I will never say that nicotine is good for you, um, but there's no evidence to suggest that it causes cancer. It definitely causes heart problems, um, and there, there's definitely negative side effects. Do, to do it. you vape nicotine? 
I've never used nicotine in my life. Got it. Do you think that, so if, if someone is a cigarette smoker and they say, I can transfer to a, a jewel or whatever it is forever, um, or I can kind of put more work in and try to quit entirely, your recommendation would still be quit entirely. Absolutely. Um, definitely. And we only talk about nicotine in terms of um, people who are over 21, of course. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I, I really believe we're going to see a ton of activity in the nicotine space. Um, have we talked about the deeming rule? No. So the FDA, in an attempt to thwart Juul, mm -hmm. came out with this thing called the deeming rule, which said that if your recreational nicotine product, so not medical, but just recreational, was on the market before August 2016, you're deemed legal until you pass through the FDA approval process, which is called PMTA. Right. Um, so because of that, it's the FDA almost gave a gift to early stage nicotine investors right. because who on earth would fund a product that you can't sell it until you have to pass FDA approval? Right. That's why we don't do biotech. <laughs> exactly. So it's um, I it's nicotine is my favorite category. And, and so in ten years, let's start with the U.S. Is there such a thing as cigarette smoking? No. When, how many years do you think that until that goes? I think that'll be like 10, 15 years before that's and gone. And the all of the world, they know that they're moving as aggressively as they can into new categories? Yes, so we're seeing, um, or we're hearing a lot of rumors that a lot of big tobacco companies are starting lifestyle or life science businesses um, where they're focused on nicotine replacement therapies, which by the way is a trillion dollar market. Yeah. Crazy. Um, and we're seeing- How big is the overall cigarette? I actually don't have that numbers on top of my head. It's got to be trillions of dollars, right? It's going to be huge, yeah. Um, but Shantix, which is crazy, it's a prescription drug that's supposed yeah. to lower, yeah, um, has huge rates of suicide. That's not good. And, yeah, isn't as effective. And they're 1.25% of the market, and they did a billion dollars in sales last year. It's crazy. Yeah. So that's pretty... Uh, Global cigarette market is $850 billion in 2021, grows at 2.5% a year. And what if you factor... Did that include vaping and all that other stuff too? I doubt it. It just says... that's the replacement, but yeah, that's yeah. got to be added in, I would imagine. It says global tobacco market, so... Right. Um, and then, so countries like China, India, is smoking like sort of still a big, big thing? They're cigarettes in yeah, 10 yeah. years? China is fascinating. So a lot of people don't know this, but there's been a lot of attempts for American vape companies to enter into China. Yeah. But the Chinese government uh, funds the military through cigarette sales. Huh. So it's been like... Uh, yeah, like a lot of big companies have failed completely. Right. Well, because they could just say, no, you're yeah. not doing this. It's, right. It's not exactly. like here where like, yeah. someone says no, and then I come in and then... You sell it anyway. Yeah, we get and to you have an bar. You know. um, so, all right. So, so basically, in the U.S., in 10-ish years, cigar actual cigarettes are basically extinct. Um, people are using nicotine. They're still better off, obviously, not using nicotine, but it's a lot better than smoking a cigarette. Yes. The cigarette companies are investing in kind of both products to get people off of, of nicotine, but also to help them into nicotine through other devices. And then are the cigarette companies getting into cannabis? I mean, we saw Altria did, right? And Philip Morris definitely has some cannabis holdings. I think it's a long time until um, investing in cannabis makes sense for me. Um, just because if you look at all the vice categories, in my opinion, the sex category and the cannabis category are the least exciting. So on cannabis, um, so we've never made a fund investment in cannabis, despite the fact that I you know, fully believe in its legalization. And it's in part because my theory has always been, um, 
eventually this will come off of Schedule 1, which is now kind of moving. And at some point after that, the Unilevers of the world, the Crafts of the world, the Paltries of the world are going to say, you know what, we should do this. And the minute they do, all these sort of consumer brands, I don't know why they really survive, right? Maybe some of them get bought if they really have a lot of traction. But overall, the Unilevers are much better at this shit than the current cannabis sector. So it's sort of like, why would you exist once the world changes and it's already changing is that how do you see it absolutely and also not for nothing um but if you kind of think about starting a cannabis business the advantages of starting a small business in the u.s do not apply to you there is no tax advantages finding an accountant is extremely difficult every time you expand your new state you need a different legal entity uh, it's, a, it's a nightmare, working capital, financing. It's all extremely difficult for these businesses. So Biden has begun the process of taking cannabis off of Schedule 1. For the listeners who don't know, Schedule 1 is basically the highest grade of punishment that you can get for drug use. It's ridiculous. Cannabis is on there. It's like heroin and things like that. So what's the, and I don't know, this is obviously just a, a spec, totally speculative question, but from when the DOJ finishes the entire process and cannabis is officially taken off of Schedule 1 until multinational corporations are jumping in, until banks are saying, you know what, now we can do this, accountants are saying it, advertising, all of that. What has to, does there need to be another law that, that legalizes it or do you think decriminalization is enough to sort of solve a lot I of I think it needs issues? to be legalized for sure. Federally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, like, a lot of people poured, like, we both have never invested in cannabis for no. these reasons, but you see a lot of funds who are pouring money into the fintech portion of it. And to me, that is so foolish, because the banks, they're not going to buy these businesses, they're going to start their own. Right. The only ones I could see, like, if, if you have a, a defective business in a very niche thing, like Dutchie does, like, cannabis compliance stuff. Yeah. Like, you could see how it'd be easier for someone to buy it than to build it, right? Yeah. But by and large, you'd have to be able to make the case that it, it, you're better off buying this company at a high multiple as opposed to just doing something yourself. When, by the way, again, if you're using the example, but they probably have most of these functions in-house already, yep. right? This is what exactly. they do. Um, so then let's flip to the other side, of it, which I know you are interested in, which is psilocybin. Yes. So tell me why you're investing in psilocybin and not cannabis. Yes, so we would never invest in the medical side of psilocybin, um, but a lot of these psilocybin businesses have no revenue, right? They have nothing to sell, they have no real product. The people who really need the help can't afford the treatment because it's not covered by insurance. Insurance companies pay pennies on the dollar for SSRI, so there's very little incentive to cover these treatments. Yeah. Um, so understanding the reality, the harsh reality of that, uh, we invested in the first consumer microdose business yeah. Um, yeah. that has yeah that has like yeah. real revenue. Mm -hmm. So for me, like that's so like when you say real revenue, like what are you talking about? Uh, like a few billion a year. Okay. Yeah, yeah so. for like a small like a, a cheap price point product. And they're so they're selling. Gummy psilocybin, is it, what's the actual drug in it? So in the U.S., obviously, it's illegal to sell that. Yeah. So in the U.S., they call, um, it's called Mojo, um, which I hate the name of, to be clear. And what's, what's in a Mojo? <laughs> um, so it's a lot of uh, ashwagandha and a lot of that. Uh, but it also, I mean, this is the brilliant part of the whole formulation, is it has a ton of delayed caffeine. Uh. So you feel it a lot later. So you'll have your morning coffee and you take one. Uh, my husband takes one every day. Huh. Yeah, he loves it. And then you can buy, like, so right now you're a listener and you want to get Mojo, how do you get it? Uh, just Google Mojo Guella, G-W-E-L-L-A. And there it is. Yeah. And what does he like about it? Um, he, so he sits in front of nine computer screens all day. Okay. 
Okay. So for him, the caffeine hit, if it comes a little later and it's like less jittery, it's a huge win for him. Um, so that's what he loves about the and, product. And the, the, you know, ashwagandha or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, what does that do to him? Like, does that make his performance and his view better? Does it just calm his anxiety? Is I think it, a combination. Yeah. And, I, and I think also, like, the concept or the idea of taking something that makes you feel better, like, automatically makes you feel better. Yeah. Right? Like, we see a lot of pseudoscience all across the wellness space. Right? So for people who smoke too much weed, mm-hmm. would you say that uh, kind of... Well, uh, psilocybin microdosing is maybe a healthier approach. Well, I would say there's no such thing as smoking too much weed. Okay. And <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like it just depends what you're optimizing for. Right. Yeah. Well, the one of the big things I think that a lot, of, at least, sort of in this culture that we're in, is appetite. So if you talk to PhD chemists, they're convinced that the munchies is a chemistry problem. Okay. And it's way beyond me. I am no scientist. Uh, but there's apparently some molecule in there that if you can remove it um, from growing, mm-hmm. yeah, from genetically modifying it, you can take out the whole sensation of eating too much when you're high. I feel like the flower is probably slightly healthier and also hits a little less hard. So like m- more of it doesn't have the same kind of impact. Um, but for things like removing the, the, the molecule, can they do that with flour or that's going to have to be more things that are kind of... I think you can probably Chemically. do it for both, right? Because if you can modify the flour, then the oil comes from the flour. Um, so I'm assuming you could, but again, I am absolutely no and scientist. What's your preference on, on how you consume cannabis? Oh my gosh, great question. So I have um, I have this thing called the Catherine Dockery Principles of Life. Okay. And every year there is a new principle of life. And for 2023, Catherine Dockery is no longer smoking flour okay. or vase. Interesting. And so I have graduated to only concentrate. Why? Uh, less smoke in your lungs. So I, yeah. I'm a bong girl. I love a good bong hit. Okay. Um, and I realized that it was terrible for me because there was so much smoke. Right. Yes. Uh, so that's why we only smoke concentrate. So how and does concentrate work? It looks like you're doing serious, serious drugs, like to be clear. It is um, uh, like you. So basically you have to put the dabs with the oil yeah. um, in a glass container. You have to heat it up to 510 degrees. Right, so it's like you're cooking. It literally looks like you're doing hard drugs. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and this is actually like off topic, on topic, but we did a research study to see if concentrate sells higher in states where there's big meth use because it's similar formulation, yeah. right? Similar process. Um, and it's true. It does. You can People literally, like yeah, you can you can forecast yeah. the demand. So so you heat it up and then what happens? How do you smoke um, it? So there's a vapor. So you just smoke the vapor and Got you it. breathe it in. Um, it's it's such a better high and there's too. Like a, is there a machine that does it for you? Yes. Yeah, so there's a Puffco, which we have, which I'm so, obsessed with. So like with. a volcano, but for concentrate? Exactly. Got exactly. It. All right, so that's the drug side. And then what do you think more broadly happens? Like, I feel like I, I always love the idea of investing in psilocybin just because, again, I believe in that. I of think course. it's really healthy, and I had a great experience with ketamine therapy. Yeah. But again, I've never pulled the trigger on a deal because I've never really figured out how anything is a scalable technology company. Right? Yes. As opposed to some sort of brick or mortar. Thing. Absolutely. So do you see anything in that sector... I guess the, the gummies are one that, that you think has the potential to go beyond just being a lifestyle business? No, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and and if, if you talk to people who are allocating to this space, yeah. I've never met a scientist 
who's part of the process. It, it's a lot of people who are more tourists in the category yeah. and who are big believers. And like, I love psilocybin. I'm a huge believer in it. Um, but I, I would never invest in a psilocybin treatment clinic. And then what about, um, you'll switch over to gambling. So you've got, what, you're in Players Lounge, you're in Green Run, what other gambling companies are you in? That's it. Those are the two. So where do you know we were in this moment in the u.s at least and green run is brazilian so we'll get to that but where you know the norms have shifted the laws have shifted right so yep. most states now allow for some sort of sports betting um which really sort of gamer skill betting more broadly um esports p2p other concepts starting to emerge you guys are with players lounge we're working on Angrilla. Um, where do you see the sector going, and especially for sort of Gen Z, do they like to gamble? Would, would you argue that people from generation to generation sort of like to gamble at roughly the same rates? It's just a, the way they like to gamble changes, or are certain generations more into gambling than others? Um, I, I think, I, I think it's a very addictive category, mm -hmm. you know. So like, I think I think it's really difficult, like if you're a big gambler, to stop gambling. Right, and I think people learn how to gamble from lots of different faucets. Like, I remember being at an airport with my dad when I was very young, and he gave me a dollar for the slot machine. And he said, go play the slot machine. And I said, okay, and I lost. And my dad was like, that's gambling. Right, good, good lesson for a <laughs> yeah. dollar, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think, but I think it's also interesting too, because if you kind of look at generation by generation, um, the way that people take financial risks are so dependent on kind of the environment they grew up in. Right, mm -hmm. um, so I, I think I think that's the same with gambling for sure. Got it. But you know, within every generation, there's lots of different environments. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's always seemed to me that the thing that, that and we've we've tried to work on this, which I, I haven't understood other than what a company like some of your companies are doing is you have this. I don't know, 140 million Americans who are millennial or Gen Z, right? So yep. we're getting close to half the country. And you know, my thesis is they like to gamble roughly the same proportions as Gen X and gamers yeah. and whatever else. But the things that you know, every fucking casino in this country, whether it's the nicest one on the strip or the worst riverboat, is just a version of red carpets, gold plating, and wheel of fortune slot machines. Yep. And I don't see how that's attractive to these generations. You just have a huge segment of the market that I just don't see that anyone's really appealing to in a way that that's interesting. absolutely and what's also interesting too is that as the years go by and technology advances there's just more and more things to gamble on right like you can right. now gamble on reality tv you can gamble on your yeah. ability to win a video game you can yeah. gamble on your ability to win a monopoly game online right like you you can't you couldn't do that 10 years ago right and you know i think like for example gorilla and evan's going to come on soon but, but you've been helping him thank you again um is if you can sort of capture a way for people who are engaging in any sort of gamer skill, it doesn't even, I mean, our thesis is there's a giant informal gambling economy, right? People playing golf and betting on it, people playing backgammon and betting on it, whatever it is, you know, to us, it's like, okay, can you capture a piece of that? And how, yeah. how do you even measure it, right? Like we've been trying to figure out what a TAM is like for something that theoretically shouldn't exist. Uh, and it's, it's hard. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I do. I, I feel like if there's not, you know, because we're on the consulting, there's a casino bit happening in New York right now. Tough strategies, like every political consultant in New York, is representing a bidder and working on it. Yeah. But it all feels very traditional gambling. And look, I think whoever gets it will do well simply because the population here is so big. So, like, when we, we ran a campaign to open up, you know, the Aqueduct, the first casino out at Aqueduct, and it's 
the highest, or at least last I checked, highest taxpayer in the state of New York because they gross over a billion dollars a year in slot revenue. It, wow. You know, it's it's a fine casino. It's not, having been to enough, it's not particularly special, but, you know, it's located right that good point between, like, Nassau County, Brooklyn, and Queens, and just because of the number of fucking people who live here, their volume is enormous. So I, I think whoever gets the New York City casinos, but we've seen, you know, in a lot of markets now around the country, it's not this panacea that people think it's going to be. It doesn't rescue local economies. A lot of them fail. Like if you put it in a rural area, you're not necessarily going to have people. It's you know it's not field of dreams, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like there's a tectonic shift coming in gambling. So A, do you agree? And then B, if you do, have, what's your perspective been at when you've been investing in this category? I, I agree with everything you've said. Um, I am constantly looking at retail, right? Because like for a long time, everybody was talking about how retail is dead, nobody wants to go in person, everything is online, yep. right? But then you also think about the concept of entertainment and that going to the store is entertainment for most Americans, right? right. Yeah, so it's similar to looking at coffee businesses, right? Like you, you have like independent coffee roasters and they aren't getting bought at the same rate or the same multiples as like a blue bottle is, right? Or like a blank street will be. Um, so I look at it so and I'm trying to figure out, yeah, yeah I'm extremely right. skeptical of these coffee businesses, <laughs> but, um, but I look at it and I'm trying to figure out as an investor myself, like what is the future of gambling in terms of actual retail locations versus how much of it will be online? Right. And what do you think? I, I don't know. I really, I, I'm still trying to figure out and form my thesis there. Yeah. It's interesting. Like we're in a company called Omaze. Do you know them? It's no. a sweepstakes company and interesting. Their thesis was effectively that if you did it for charity and you had took a piece of it, it could be a pretty lucrative business. And they're still proving it out, right? Like they've had product market fit here. They're doing it in the UK right now. But, you know, again, because it's it's a younger generation that there hasn't been a lot of gaming specifically designed for them yet, it's yeah. unclear what they're going to take to it. We kind of assume it's going to be esports type stuff. You know, even in the ESG type gaming thing, which is kind of like what uh, <laughs> amazes, right? You know, money will go to whatever it is, and then you can also want a house or a car or whatever. But um, yeah, so then, are you like why? Why do you like Brazil as a gaming market? I love Latin American uh, markets for American traditional businesses. Why? Um, because they're in general like ten years behind the U.S. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've seen a lot of very traditional like HR platforms, right? Absolutely kill it in the continent. Um, so I think you're taking a lot less risk because you know it already works in one market. Um, you kind of see the markets developing in general. I, I, I would love to open a fund that literally just does Latin American investing. I'm sure you could. <laughs> Except, so that with Catherine, it's fun as we both know. Like, you have more ideas for interesting kind of sidecar funds that you could do that you think would be successful. Yeah. Then you have the time or capacity to raise the actual funds themselves. I always say I would right. love to clone myself to three different people. And right. Yeah, it would be right because we, I mean, Jordan and I have sort of the same thing, which is like I come up with all, I mean, I see all the time like weird regulatory arbitrage. And I'm like, oh, this could be kind of lucrative. But then it's sort of like, you know, it's not what my LPs are asking me to do. Yes. And... You know, the linear growth of funds, the need to keep, you know, growing is so strong that it gets, I think you have to be pretty mega then to have a team that does 
just weird specialty shit. Yeah. Right? Like, we're not big enough for that yet. You're not. No, we're nowhere near big enough for that. Um, yeah. So, like, but, like, talk about Green Rock. Like, what do they do? You know, how are they kind of combining media with gambling? And what Absolutely. Are they about them? So, the founder of Green Run is the ex founding uh, CTO of Virtual Sports. So, he very early on in his career saw the benefit of attaching a media business to a gambling business. Because, uh, as we know, Virtual Sports and Pen Gaming. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, he basically, his best friend, is the founder of this company called Esportudo, which is yep. the fastest growing sports media business in the continent. Um, so kind of seeing the, that growth and that revenue numbers, he was like, we have this huge opportunity to create Penn National and Barstool in Latin America. Yep. Um, so he started this gambling or skill-based betting, sports betting, whatever you want to call it, business in Brazil. Yep. Um, they got the last gambling license ever in Mexico, um, and they have a, licenses in Malta and Curaçao. Um, so they own 15% of eSportudo, mm -hmm. and it kicks betters over to their platform at an extremely low CAC, especially compared to U.S. CAC. Um, right, which, by the way, like, especially sports betting, is the customer acquisition is the worst fucking insane. thing ever. Right. Insane. At one point, I think it was $1,300. Right, but then the problem is, at least in the U.S., there's just very little to differentiate the platforms, right? Yes. Other than giving you free stuff. What can they really offer you? Yeah, and then you're entering into the promo hunting game. Right. So then, why is that not a problem for Green Run? Uh, so right now in Green in Brazil, all of the sports betting apps are all white label technology. So it's truly the same experience, platform to platform to platform. Green Run is the first company that has made their own tech. So you sign on every morning if if you're that active. Um, they give you seven bets recommended based off your history of betting. Um, so it's already super personalized and tailored. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's also a ton of big celebrities who are now using eSportudo for their own fame, right? And if you can get Neymar in one of those platforms, like, game over, right? Right. right. And is that, uh, are there, like, Brazilian soccer players that are engaging with this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah we even had Stephen Curry, like, send a jersey to a fan, which was crazy. Yeah, that is cool. Um, yeah. So last category, alcohol. Um, oh, what's your sense of where the market is today? Where's it going? Is there big changes or is this just kind of a more steady business that like it is what it is? I'm becoming less and less a fan of the alcohol market in okay. general. Um, I think beverage is almost impossible. If you kind of, I mean, I see financials all day long of these businesses and yeah. they, so much of the money is spent on revenue. Like I saw a recent deal where they did like 1.7 million in revenue and they spent 1.9 on marketing. Right, so the margins are like zero. Yeah, it's right. horrendous. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? Like what, so they're, they're just buying shelf space or they're buying retailers off or like what's, where's where that money actually going? So great, yeah, so a great example would be vodka category, right? Like there's no special process to make vodka. Vodka is straight up ethanol. Right? Um, I'm sorry, what was the question? I totally lost my shade thought. What are they spending the money on? Oh, they're spending the money. Um, literally on ads, on marketing, on in-person taste testing at liquor stores. Um, that That's what they're spending their money on, trying to differentiate. And in reality, like, if you do a blind taste test and ask someone to tell the difference, assuming both wines are the same uh, temperature, most people can't tell the difference between red and white wine on a blind taste test. Wow. You know, yeah. Yeah, apparently some even wine experts can't tell the difference. Yeah, yeah. can't tell the really? difference. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? We have all these preferences of what we like, but we don't really know anything about what we like. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a tough, I have a friend from college who started a rum company that was, they made a product in Mauritius maybe 20 years ago. And yeah. 
I think he's done okay, but I think it's a really hard business. So it's like, you know, traveling around the country, dealing with individual liquor stores and bars and yeah. clubs. And it's a tough, especially if you're not one of the few giant distributors. It's really difficult. Yeah, really and, difficult. and the regulatory, this is more than the listeners want to get into, but the regulatory structure for the distribution of alcohol is so corrupt and so stacked just for the current system that, you know, we've talked to lots of startups that want to disrupt it. Um, but even we're like, you're gonna need a lot of fucking money to do that. You need so many lobbyists to do something like that. Like, right. I could not imagine. Catherine, is there anything that runs counter to that where you just see something and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm into this even though the overall space is bad? Um, I, I hate non-alcoholic alcohol companies. I, I think it's juice and I think people who actually don't drink have no interest in that. Um, so I, I hate those categories, full transparency. I also hate, I saw a business recently and I, I was like, why does this exist? It's a, it's a vodka that has less alcohol, ABV in it. And to me, I'm like, you can just pour less vodka into the drink. Like, you know, like you don't, you don't need a watered down ethanol. Like, right. yeah, yeah, well for the people, look, is there some consumer that's like, oh, that's perfect for me for this reason? Yes. Are they enough to like- I'm sure first purchase. Like, be a like, you know, exponential growth, you know, company that's gonna get a multiple- It's just crazy. Like most people don't even know like the proof on a vodka anyway. So you're selling- It's high, right? It's 80, it's 80 proof, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're selling something that's, that's smaller that people don't even know exists. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, so you're, you're a New York City fund in the sense that you're here. Yes. Um, do you feel like you're part of the New York City kind of venture and tech world or do you just live here because you happen to like living here but it's sort of irrelevant? It's kind of irrelevant where we are. Um, I mean, you guys are the only fund that we work with, full transparency. Um, we get 92% of our deal flow from founders directly, so we don't really have to work with other funds. Yeah. Uh, and also, like, I, I'm, I'm someone who operates, like, I'm not competitive. I'm just extremely focused. So I pay no attention to what other people are doing. And if it's outside of the vice mandate, I, I don't care. Um, so I, I could be I could be in Romania and it would probably be the same experience. All right. So then on the so you still you live in New York City. Yeah. You, could, you can't live anywhere, right? Because your portfolio companies are all over the country and all over the world. Yep. What makes you choose to be here? And then what what's the tipping point? Where you're like, fuck this. I don't, I'm not going to stay here anymore. Um, that's a very funny question. So I grew up in New York City and I've never lived anywhere else. Like I went to NYU, grew up in downtown Manhattan. Um, so for me, like the first time that I really ever saw life outside of New York City was when I met my in-laws. Where do they live? Massachusetts. Okay. Which is my least favorite state now. Really? Worse than Ohio? <laughs> Worse than, at least Ohio, you're like, okay, like I'm in the middle of nowhere. But Massachusetts, like if you meet anybody, like even if they live on the border yeah, of Western like Mass. Holes, yeah. yeah, they're like, oh, I live in Boston. And I'm like, you don't live in Boston. <laughs> you were so far away from Boston. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but it's funny because, uh, like they, they have a big lawn, you know? So they have to like hire gardeners and they have to hire someone to do their landscaping. They have to hire like people to do wildlife, you know? Right, so like, but like what are, right, but let's say you could move to Austin and live in a really nice condo. No, no, no interest. What would have to happen here on crime? Now maybe for you because you're a true, true New Yorker, the answer is there's no place. I would never like, I just wonder where, I guess where I'm worried about as someone who does pay a lot of attention to local politics yeah. is the city has to offer a strong value proposition because living here in the best of times requires sacrifice. Right? Absolutely. It's still not easy. It's still going to be somewhat dirty. It's still going to cost a zillion dollars 
for housing and you're still going to probably want to send your kid if you can to private school because the public schools aren't that good and yep. all this stuff. Um, but if it feels generally clean and safe and there's shit going on, you're like, okay, I, that, that trade-off works. Yeah. I guess what I'm wondering is where is the point, and I guess it's, a, it's going to be different for everyone, but overall, where all of a sudden it's too dirty, it's too dangerous, it's, and then the cost and all the things that you normally are willing, the prices you're willing to pay to be here and sacrifice you want to make don't really add up anymore. For me, it could never be too dirty or too dangerous, but it, one of my favorite things about living in New York is that you have three major airports mm -hmm. an hour away, like give or take, in any direction. So for me to move, those airports would have to be closed. So you don't want to live in New Jersey? I would never live in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah. Actually, I'll give you one thing that would, I think, move you out of New York, which there was a proposal in Albany a year to go to tax unrealized gains. Oh my God, I mean, you no, can't, And Biden mentioned this in the State of the Union, like you can't have a fund. Be I mean, like, right, because like, we invest in a company, let's say we leave the Series A, we invest five million bucks, it's a $45 million valuation or whatever it is. Series B is 130 million. In theory, we're up 85 million and there's some piece on that, but who the fuck knows when this it's is gonna liquid. exit. Yeah. Totally liquid, there's no secondary market for it. And like, you know, if, if New York did it, I'd have to move my fund because we literally wouldn't have the cash every year to pay taxes on unrealized no, gains. I would not have. Um, but I, I'd probably just base my fund somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, it's the, <laughs> only, the only reason I think I would leave New York for good would be that one. If, if they did that one thing where it's like, I literally, you have banned me from How would you make any money running a fund? It would be insane yeah, to do that. I, by the way, but you would imagine it would be... It's not just us, right? So it's every venture fund, it's every private equity fund, it's every hedge fund, it's every investment bank. Like it would wipe out the economy, but I think part of the challenge we have in, in local politics here is the people who like these ideas don't seem to have any clue at all of like where the revenue the comes from to pay for all the shit that they want to do, right? Yeah. And they just think it's just totally elastic and the money will just always be there. Oh my God, um, it'll be and, a nightmare. And that's not the case. Yeah, so I, I, I worry about this, but I'm glad that you're, you're set here no matter what. So l last question is, you know, we're in an industry that is still highly dominated by men, and then you're in a category that's probably even more dominated by men, yes. right? So you're a young woman. Um, what's it like out there kind of being a young female CEO in a world that's so male-dominated? It's very funny. I grew up with my dad and my uncle, uh, so for me, like I never, like I like I I never had like a female presence, you know. Right. So for me, like I was always just one of the guys. Like I never thought of it any differently. Um, so pitching for Vice Centers and starting Vice Centers was not a daunting experience because I didn't consider myself any different from the people I was pitching. Right. Um, but one thing I've noticed recently is that. Everybody, every new investor in the past three weeks that I've met has asked me what my husband does for a living. Huh. And in which I, which I respond, would you, if I was a man, would you ask what my wife did for a living? Right, no one ever asked me that. Exactly, Never. exactly. Um, yeah, so that, that's one thing that I've, that I've noticed is that fundraising, it's, it's always like, oh, well, I'm, I'm allocating 20% of my portfolio to female founders. Right, so when you, but that, in some ways, it creates opportunity, right? So are there funds where you're like, LPs, we were like, oh, I should pitch these guys because they just need to check this box, and I happen to be the box to check, so I might as well take advantage of it. I actually turned down money for Fund One, which may have been foolish. Um, I refuse to take money because I check a diversity box. Okay. 
I, I want to take money that I feel like I have earned and I feel like I have competed for at a fair rate. Right, so let me give you the counter to that. Yes. Which is, um, raising money is, as you know, so fucking hard. So hard. And so random. Right? Yeah. Like the things that, by the way, and th same thing random with us, like when we invest or don't invest in startups, right? Some, like the founder could have food on his face in Zoom, not know it. I'm like, ah, I'm not that guy, right? <laughs> or like, you know, it could be such stupid little things because, totally. you know, you have to say no 99% of the time. So you're basically just looking for categories to say no to. So, so yeah. given that, I guess if I were you, like, I, I'm not in any sort of protected class, so like it doesn't help me at all, but like, I would take advantage of every opportunity that was there because it's not like there's a fair prescribed process for raising money yeah. and then you're going around it. There's no fucking process. It's just random and ad hoc and, and I would nuts. counteract to that. Okay. I agree with you 100%. But with us, so because we can't take money from endowments or pensions yeah. or anything, uh, we pretty much only take money from individuals. Right. So the relationships I have with my OPs are fantastic. Like... Close, like close friends, you right. know. But then, how do you how are you going to scale enough? Like, I'm an LP, and I, yeah, and yeah. I have increased fund, you know, my investments. But like, I'm not. I'm never going to give you ten million dollars, <laughs> right? So, like, how do you get to where you want to be if you're relying on a lot of? people I mean, like that's me? a bigger question, you know. Like, how big should vice ventures be for a seed stage fund? Do you know? Like, is that? Do you have a number in your mind that you think is the right number? I think I think if we, so so like we raised. Four years ago, yeah. right? And we're still deploying out of FUD1 yeah. because we don't we, we don't play the management fee game. You know, like we only make an investment if I think like I can get involved, help the company succeed. Yeah, um, yeah so that's, that's kind of how we operate. So like looking at advice, like, like a bigger and bigger seed fund isn't as exciting to me as like a growth equity fund would be or a private equity fund. Well, right, especially because a bigger and bigger seed fund becomes a management fee game. Yes, right? exactly. Like, we have the same thing, right? Because I have tough strategies on the other companies, like I don't really care about them. I mean, I'm glad that I no longer have to subsidize the whole fund out of my pocket like I used Sounds to. Sounds familiar. <laughs> but uh, I don't really care that much about the management fees. Like I would gladly, I would gladly trade it for more carry. Um, oh, fact, and I proposed that when we were raising fund one and the, all the advice I got was like, you're thinking so weird already, and you're such a non-traditional investor, like, do not make it more complicated. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, we have a dozen people on the payroll, so it's hard for me now to say, okay, I'm gonna sacrifice, I'm gonna pick of up course. all these costs out of my pocket. But yeah, I, I'm with you, and that, like, too big of a, you know, Jordan and I are thinking about the composition of Fund 4 right now. Um, we've doubled our fund size each time, you know, 35, Fund 1, 70, Fund 2, 140, Fund 3. Awesome. I don't know if we could get to 280, but I don't want to. I yeah. think it's too much money to deploy in seed and Series A deals. Totally agree. And, you know, on 280, you're getting, what, $5.6 million a year in management fees. Helpful, but not, you know, by the time all your costs are in, it's not life-changing money. No. And if you're far less likely to be in carry because, you know, you took so much money to begin with... It doesn't, like, I, you know, I, I almost in a way understand the people that raise these insane $600 million Series A funds because they only intend to make money off the management fees. Yeah. Right? Um, but, you know, if you don't have to do that, I think, why would you? Like, I had an interesting lunch with Andy Weissman, who runs, you know, your Square Ventures, one of the people who runs it. And I said, what was the worst fund you ever raised? It was the one where we raised too much money. Oh, like, interesting. We deviated from our model. And it was a disaster. Yeah. Uh, disaster for them is probably like a pretty still good fund because they're like the best, but like yeah. one of the best. But like, 
But yeah, I mean, it's funny as like I go through this, like I, you know, when you're in the middle of fundraising, you just want to win. So you want to accumulate shit. But, yeah. But I think you're right that like there's a, there's a point that's the right number. And then after that, it's, and, you know, and, and right. And like the ego for you and me, at least because we're so differentiated, like we're not competing on the, well, I have a $10 billion fund. I have a $20 billion yeah. fund. It's more like I do this, you know, weird thing. I invest in vice. I solve our company's regulatory problems, whatever it is. Yeah. And so you kind of almost don't even need like the status symbol of that because you have your thing already. That's a very good point. Um, I've also, I'm trying to coin this. So if anybody's listening, please okay. do use this phrase. <laughs> um, ego projects. Okay, so tell me what that means. Retail stores for DTC companies, ego projects. Well, like this bookstore that I'm sitting in right now. Ego projects, yeah, great for sure. ego projects. But I lose money and I fully intended to. Like, I understand that's bad. And you entered that. Like, we, we just hosted yeah. a party. Ego project for me. I wore a sparkly dress, you know? Loved it. Right. Ego project. Um, so when, I, when we advise our portfolio companies, I try to advise them against ego projects. Um, that makes sense. Yes. All right, how do people learn more about Vice Ventures? Uh, feel free to shoot me an email at info at viceventures.com. Cool. There you go. Catherine Doctor, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, my friend. Cool.